everyone, welcome back to another episode of Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, your host and president of Morton Group LLC, a national consulting firm based in Chicago. This time on Gathering Ground, I am sharing a conversation that I moderated ahead of the upcoming conference, Synthesizing Strengths, a nonprofit sector that works together. This is the annual conference for Axelson Center for Nonprofit Management, which is part of North Park University. The conference will be an exciting day of professional development and collaboration, and it is happening on Friday, October 20th. Good afternoon. We are going to get started now. I am Dr. Pierre Rogers, Director of the Axelson Center at North Park University in Chicago. I'm excited to welcome everyone to today's pre-conference session, Pathways to Collaboration, leading up to our full conference on October 20th. Our discussion this afternoon is intended to get you thinking about the range of collaboration, consider new ways of thinking about it, and learn from some experts on the topic. Let me introduce our moderator, Mary Morton, President and CEO of the Morton Group, Dr. Jennifer Madden, Business School Dean at Linfield University, and Kate Piet Eckert, Director of the Mission Sustainability Initiative at Forefront here in Illinois. All three of them have differing lenses on the topic of collaborations and partnerships. Mary has engaged in bringing groups together in collaborative initiatives and has co-written a book chapter including such topics. Jennifer's work as an academic and consultant has offered opportunities to research and write a book about collaboration, as well as to lead community groups in such work. And Kate, through her work at Forefront, leads partnership efforts with many organizations. Before I hand things over to Mary, let me do a quick commercial about the Axelson Center. We offer a wide range of nonprofit management education topics, from custom trainings to conferences. Actually, our annual conference, whose theme is collaboration, is coming up on October 20th. We also do awards programs, a boot camp for new nonprofit CEOs or executive directors, and more. Our programs are non-credit, but through our School of Business and Nonprofit Management, graduate certificates and degrees are offered in business, nonprofit administration, and more. So now I'll turn the program over to Mary. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pierre. Uh, really excited to be here to talk to Jennifer and Kate about collaborations. As you mentioned, this is something that uh, I've certainly done a considerable amount of work in over um, several years. And in fact, I've had the good fortune of working uh, with Forefront. And uh, you will hear us sometimes refer to Mission Sustainability Initiative as MSI, uh, just for shorthand. And so I've had a chance to work through that process. And you know, certainly we'll talk a little bit about that through this conversation. So we're gonna take about 40, 45 minutes of some conversation between the three of us, among the three of us, and then we will open it up for some uh, Q&A, so please, even now, start to think about what questions you might have, and I'll remind you throughout, uh, and we will get to as many of your questions as we can. So let's get started. Let's jump right in. And um, what I, I first want to do is to really hear from both of you, uh, both Kate and, and Jennifer, with regard to how you think about collaborations. When you think about defining a collaboration, tell me how, how you, you think about that. And I'm going to start with you, Jennifer. Thank you, Mary. That's a that's a great starting point because um, collaboration, as we know, could mean so many things, or or at least when you say the word, so many things come up in the mind of the people who hear the word. And so, when I think about collaboration, I think about synergy, 
And I think about how can two organizations come together, work together, and create something greater than the two of them could do on their own. To me, that's really like the core of collaboration and what excites me so much about it. Kate? Yeah, that's great. I, As you said, there are a million different ways that people and organizations can work together. And I think maybe it's because it's lunchtime, but I am thinking of sort of when I'm talking about collaboration, um, there are the sort of cheese and crackers versions of collaboration where you get two great things, you put them together and there's something better, but you can take them back apart again and they're still great. The kinds of collaboration I'm really excited about are what I think of as the grilled cheese collaborations, where you take two things and you put them together and they become a whole new thing that you wouldn't even want to try to take back apart, but it's better than either thing was on its own. So that's the universe that I like to operate in. Okay, Kate, are you going to continue to use food? Uh... I might. I can't lie. It's, uh, that's where my head is. Uh, it's not good. Not good. <laughs> right. But neither. I don't think any of us have had lunch. But nonetheless, um, so let me just let me ask you this, Jennifer, with regard to how you define collaborations. I I think of a coalition as a collaboration. Mm-hmm. And so you said you mentioned two organizations. Do you that's do you fair. think about it outside of that as well? Yes. So let me say two or more. So, okay. Yes, okay. I think that that's right. fair. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, because no, I just think sometimes folks don't understand that in fact this is a collaboration when they're in coalition, right? Some of the same that's principles true. apply. And so let's yes. let's move into talking about what are some of the foundations? What what are some of the foundational concepts, if you will, that um you would use to frame um how a collaboration might occur? So we we yes. you know, we started to talk about what it might consist of. What are some of those concepts that really will decide whether or not it's going to be successful? Um, you want to go I love start that question. Be- yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. I'm jumping right in. Honestly, organizations working together, be it two or, or 20, they, one of the core components is for collaborations to be successful, especially in my research, is that the partners have to act selfishly. If, if organizations to agree to act selfishly and they're joining this collaboration you know, because they see a clear benefit for them, that's when you'll be able to have a high impact collaboration. That's when you'll be able to avoid the uncertainties and the and the um, the obstacles that are inherent in any collaboration. So when you go in knowing you're doing this for very clear reasons and you're acting very selfishly, that's when you'll be able to tap into that resilience. Also, to make sure the others in the collaborative partnership are acting selfishly as well, the collaborators need to activate their active listening skills, that they're really leaning in and paying attention and hearing that their potential partners, collaborators, are also getting into this collaboration for very selfish reasons. Because when we do that at the core, then we, we really are um, increasing our likelihood of success. And then once I can in, ensure that there's active listening and there's looking for what I call that mutual benefit, you know, mutual, you know, exploration of mutual benefit, that I mean, acting selfishly, then I like to say that organizations can tap into what I call the ABCDs of successful collaboration. And it is just a reminder that A, even if you're joining this collaboration, this partnership, you know, you still can retain your autonomy, A, autonomy. You can still be independent just because you're working with this group. It doesn't mean you lose who you are as an organization. B, B is a commitment to what I call boundary spanning. If you're going to be in this collaborative partnership, 
this coalition, you need to be willing to go outside of, of the collaboration to get the resources that you need, the support, the assistance, and bring it back into the collaboration. So you need to be willing to boundary span. The C in my research was really shared vision, but ABSD didn't sound as nicely. So, you know, common vision, <laughs> shared vision, common vision, same difference. Yeah. So, okay. so when, when you're really pulling together your team, thinking about this, you know, work, create a shared vision because what people co-create, they sustain. And if you can create this shared vision, it, it really fuels again, that resilience. It really enables you to overcome some of the challenges it, really inherent in collaboration. And, um, you know, because it's, it's common knowledge that collaborations could be a good thing, but it's not common practice. So you need all of these skills and insight and support to help drive you through. And then okay. finally, the D, okay. the, the D is, uh, is design thinking or design attitude. And what that means essentially is that you have a willingness to create a, a future that doesn't yet exist. Mm. You know, the, the pathways in front of you historically have not worked. And, you know, we often, especially when I put on my academic hat, we, we teach this decision attitude. The decision attitude is you have choice A or choice B. Historically, you know, those choices haven't worked. Why are they still our choices? They should right. not be. So we need to instead take a design attitude to create some new opportunities for us to, you know, move in that direction. So those are the ABCDs of successful collaboration. Autonomy, boundary spanning, you know, common vision and design attitude, design thinking. All right, wonderful. Uh, Kate, yes. I, I want to move to you and, and ask, uh, certainly in your experience at, at, at your experiences at MSI, with regard to how someone may come forward, um, we, we've used the term collaborations, and yet under that big umbrella, there are many different ways to approach that, right? Most often we might think about a, a collaboration could be actually a strategic partnership, Mm -hmm. um, it could move from a collaboration to a merger or acquisition, mm -hmm. right? And so the ones that I've been involved with um, that don't require um, some of the heavy lifting that you might do for a merger or acquisition with these strategic partnerships, which I think are sort of that, that first level, right, around collaborations. Although I think there's some room in there, right, in terms of someone saying, we're going to go in on a grant proposal together because we can provide these opportunities, we can work on the policy piece together. That's a collaboration, right? Mm -hmm. um, yet when an organization has said, you know, we, we need to do, deal with our back office, right? We need to deal with the fact that development is not where it should be. We could use some support around finance. Those in some cases then be, can become a strategic partnership with an, another organization. Can you talk about uh, strategic partnerships, which as I said, I think are just a, in some cases gonna be um, just a little bit above your general collaboration. Absolutely. Another way to think of it might be in the realm of programmatic versus administrative, that both uh -huh. are different types of collaborating uh -huh. yep. and there isn't necessarily a hierarchy. Um, I think I hear the term a lot of lesser collaborations, meaning not a merger, but I don't, in the way I'm viewing the work, there really isn't a hierarchical structure between collaborations, just different types of working together with different goals. Um, I'll also say, as I, I will talk about some examples of collaborations I have seen and types I've seen, I usually won't tell you which organizations I'm talking about. I'm not being cagey, but a big tenant of the MSI's work is making sure that organizations can come to us with extreme confidentiality. And so I will uh, maintain that here. But uh, I think in the realm of strategic partnerships or administrative collaborations or whatever phrase we want to use, 
I'm seeing a huge range of different ways folks are working together. Certainly on one end of a spectrum are mergers and acquisitions where two separate organizations become one organization, or sometimes a smaller organization becomes a program of a larger organization. That can happen too. But I'm also seeing uh, joint ventures, which sometimes can be coalitions or other work where multiple organizations come together with a shared purpose and create a new entity that they all participate in. Uh, one example I can talk about uh, that's very public is One Voice for Arts in Oak Park, where multiple arts organizations came together to work uh, and created a new organization that supports all of them. So there's some really interesting examples like that. Uh, but we also see things like co-location. So instead of having a typical landlord-tenant relationship, you might see three or four or five organizations with a similar clientele or similar space needs coming together to collectively acquire or lease space, which can create a one-stop shop for their clientele or their students or whoever they're serving um, and while streamlining their back end. And then certainly shared staff or back end uh, collaborations where organizations might share a CFO or an HR person or some sort of other administrative role. Uh, we're also seeing quite a lot of program transfers is what we would call them, or asset transfers, mm -hmm. especially around government contract or government funded organizations, where an organization might grow organically over 50 or 100 years, acquiring new government contracts as they go. And then through some strategic planning, discover, you know what, these couple of programs or this one program don't actually make sense in our universe anymore. They're not aligned with our vision. So being able to transfer them to a partner organization that might be better situated to fulfill that work right now, they're certainly tricky. I mean, transferring government work can be tricky, but we can really see it in, you know, organizations be better streamlined and better able to serve their mission at the same time that individuals are then getting better service. So there's, there are a lot of different ways this can work, but um, it's been exciting to explore. That's the, the, those are some wonderful examples, and I in particular want to think a little bit more about the one you listed, um, the transferring of programs. Mm -hmm. I think it really ties into what you were saying, Jennifer, in terms of being selfless, right? To think about, we want to provide these services, what's the best way to do it? And to have to really come to the understanding that it may not be where it is currently located. And that takes an act, right, of selflessness. and for an organization to get to that point is a major step. When you're when you're thinking about how organizations work together in a partnership, uh, and something we talk about a lot in our work at Morton Group um, is that our work moves at the speed of trust. And so mm. how do we establish the trust, right? Where we're talking about racial equity work or we're talking about an executive search. We have to have trust with our client partner. And I think that is a key point when organizations are coming together, because I don't think that it is it is necessarily there in those opening moments. I'll just speak from my my own experiences in that um, you're let's say if you're part of the organization that's exploring right this opportunity, you're you're concerned, you're worried, you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing. And Jennifer, what have you seen in terms of how people come to some resolution in those opening meetings? to decide, okay, we can move forward and continue these conversations. You know, you, it's, it's, so, it's so true. And um, it, it's interesting because early on in, in my research, there, the one thing that emerged just over and over and over and over again was that, that, that trust component. And that, um, and 
this idea that organizations need to spend time getting to know each other was so critical. I didn't think I could get a PhD on that, so I didn't write about that in my research, but it was full on there like you would not believe. And so the other way to potentially think about it, and this sort of is, feels like the theory that supports Kate's perspective, is that we can only be distinctive in our areas of strength. And if we want to be distinctive, lean into those strengths. And when we can focus on like our sweet spot, that's when we can really start to thrive. And then the the other piece about what, what does it take? Honestly, my recommendation is to lean into emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is a superpower. And emotional intelligence is simply you have these emotional competencies and social competencies. The emotional competencies are simply self-awareness and self-management. And then the social competencies are social awareness and relationship management, just awareness of self and others. And when you can sharpen those skill sets, boy, it makes you an incredible partner. You you really start to, to build up these skills that allow you to really, really deliver exceptional you know, to be exceptional. You know, I just want to say that emotional intelligence, we hear that more and more. And it's something now that as we're doing executive searches, um, the, the, you know, search committee, the transition committee is, is literally being much more intentional about because there, there's no way to overstate uh, how important it is, right? In terms of being able to not only observe, understand, and manage the emotions of your team, but also your own self-regulation. It's really key, like so, so key. Um, Kate, when you think about uh, some of the experiences you've had and that while you've been uh, at Forefront, as well as some of the things I'm sure you, because I know you've been doing all this research on things that happened prior to you arriving. Can you talk a little bit about some of the lessons learned that we want to share as, you know, as we continue to unpack what are some cases myths about how this this can work or how it actually does work? Absolutely. I think, and as, as Mary referenced, I've been in this role for less than a year, really just over six months. Um, I've certainly participated in a lot of collaborations over my career, but I've had the opportunity to do a lot of research into past MSI funded projects and other collaborations, and it's been a fascinating journey. But um, I think one of the things I wanted to talk about that ties into what Jennifer was just saying is about, I. it seems to me that many organizations, probably most organizations, really have two missions. They have their mission that is their mission statement, that's the impact they want to have in the world. And then they have the mission to keep existing as an organization. Like that is, and often uh, sometimes when organizations find themselves in fiscal trouble or are responding to changing environments, the mission of existing becomes that much more important and more and more of the organization's resources focus on fulfilling the mission of continuity. Um, And it becomes harder and harder to find the resources and time and energy to fulfill the mission of impact. And I think what I see in some really successful collaborations, uh, whether they're coalitions or mergers or anywhere in between, is it gives organizations the freedom to focus more of their time and energy on impact and less on continuity. Um, by continuity, I mean continuing the organization structure. Uh, what, what I look at that, and the Mission Sustainability Initiative is a kind of jargony name, um, but when I really think about its core, it's about how do we focus on mission sustainability 
instead of necessarily organizational sustainability, that yes, the organizational structure is important, but we're all here for the work and the impact. So that's what I see as some of those, the, the organizational collaborations that are the most exciting to me are the ones that really let organizations pull some of that focus away from the, the operation and into how we actually do the work. One of the myths I, I hear a lot, it's not a myth, I think it's just, um, it's a, a sense of timing around the idea that one plus one equals three, or we can do more together. Like that is true. And that is why we are all in this room today. It's why this, this whole work around organizational collaboration exists. But I think what we don't talk about is just how long that takes. And I think mm-hmm. one plus one for a while sometimes equals one and a half. And uh, it takes a while as we bring organizations together to really get rolling. And there's a lot that goes into that. It doesn't mean that it's not a successful collaboration, but I think it's also not an immediate, um, you know, you put two things together and boom, you have some magic. So I think that's the thing I've heard from organizations over and over is that it took a lot longer than they thought. And that patience was really key. Well, that is exactly my, my experience as well that there is not um, a deep understanding of the culture piece, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That it's not just the deal, right? The making the, you know, the sort of coming together for the deal and all the enormous action items and strategies that are, are put into that, but it is, okay, we have these two organizations. And, and what we're talking about now is clearly beyond a collaboration, right? We're talking about two or organizations that have decided to come together as a merger or uh, an acquisition. And to your point, people think, oh, we're going to come together. We're going to have at least a get to know you party, and then it's all going to be great. And of course, that is not the case, right? And and that is, it is the same thing when you have a new leader. And we often talk to, again, uh, search committees about this, that the transition goes on for at least a year, at least a year, right? You need to go through everything for at least a full year, go through the entire cycle. And so um, that's been my experience as well, is that there's an underestimation of the amount of time that you must really put toward bringing the two different cultures together. Jennifer, what's been your experience in this area? Uh, that You're spot on that, um, you know, organization culture will trump a strategy all, all day. And um <laughs> And if and and it's a it's a it's an it's a nod to the importance of having strategy when it comes to building your your collaboration, building that work, building the collaborative effort. And we can take one from the strategic planning handbook that um, that it's powerful to have this lofty idea on you know what we're reaching towards. I think that that's powerful, and it gives it gives the collaborative partners you know, the ability to keep their eye on the prize, but you also need implementation strategy so that you can connect, you know, the way forward to the, the larger vision. And so the larger vision can sort of be the guide, but the implementation plan can keep you on, on track in the, on, the, on that journey. And the other piece is really this notion of pushing you know, and, and, and again, I'm going to speak to leaders of these collaborations to challenge you to be, you know, heliotrophic. And this is a, 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 a academic context from the social sciences that says that, that any, that 
that all living things are drawn to that what gives them life. And if you can find ways to be inspirational and motivational, that that will encourage your team and motivate your team so that they will, will see that, that vision and move towards that, that light. Wonderful. So I wanna just pick up too on the implementation piece. It is very similar to a strategic plan. Um, I, we, we often talk about the amount of time and resources that an organization will spend on it. And yet, you know, it goes on a shelf somewhere, right? And so we always are talking about that and saying, you know, you spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of cash because you, you pay for an external uh, consultant to help you work on this. How do you implement it? How is it a living document? Because many people think you do it and it's done and you never go back to it. You don't tweak it when, of course, you should be monitoring it. And if something doesn't make sense anymore because of the, um, the external uh, world and things that we can't control, then of course you go back in and you adjust it. It's amazing the groups that don't think they can do that. And it sounds like you've, you've had that experience as well. Um, I, I wanna take a moment, Kate, and really tell folks so they understand what exactly happens at MSI. Just take us through, yeah. um, you know, an example of how someone, an organization could be helped through what is provided at MSI. Absolutely happy to. So there are really three kinds of work that we provide. Um, the first we call confidential consultations. I call it chatting. It's uh, you and me, whoever you are uh, in a Zoom call or in person talking about how you're thinking about collaboration. And, and I think in a lot of places, in a lot of sectors, there you don't even know how to begin the conversation. You have an idea that it might make sense to work with another organization, either programmatically, which sometimes can be easier to talk about, or administratively, which might be harder to talk about, um, or you're facing an organizational challenge in which a partner organization might be the right answer, or even you've identified another organization and two executive directors are excited about working together, but can't even begin to figure out how to have this conversation with their boards. And there's a lot of fear that comes with these conversations around, you know, what happens if a funder finds out that I'm talking about merging and then they might pull my funding because they'll think, you know, ba-da-da, or what happens if a staff member finds out and then they're going to start looking for a job. There's, I think, a lot of uncertainty. Um, it's also work that's really hard to Google. You just don't know. Like if you need a fundraising consultant, you type in fundraising consultant and you get some great options. If you need someone to figure out whether you want to do a program transfer or a co-location and you don't know either of those phrases, it's really hard to look up. So a lot of this chatting is just gives leaders, board chairs, executive directors, whoever it is that's starting the conversation, an entry place. I am a I am not a subject matter expert in every kind of collaboration, but I know the folks who are, and I am um, you know a, a tour guide along the path of this work. So I can help folks navigate and discuss and brainstorm and bring up some ideas they might not have thought of. The second big piece is really around connecting folks with those experts and those resources. Sometimes it's you know, helping folks find a consultant who's doing the kind of work they need to do or connecting them to pro bono counsel if they're looking for some legal support. A lot of times it's sending them case studies or examples of other collaborations like what they are working on just to give them some food for thought or even some tactical things like a financial due diligence checklist just to get their head you know, running in the right space. And then I think the best known piece of our work is our grant making. So the MSI is a pooled fund. There are several foundations that support our work. 
And through that, we're able to re-grant those funds to organizations to support the one-time costs of this work. Um, and those grants um, also are divided into thirds. We, you know, so many threes in this world, but are, uh, and those, those grants really look at the different phases of this work. So in the pre-exploratory phase, they're smaller grants and they're for single organizations to really do that assessment, that sort of self-analysis of where am I? Am I ready to explore a partnership? What does that look like? The second phase is the exploratory phase where two or more organizations are typically hiring a consultant or some other facilitator to figure out what the partnership looks like. That's really where you get into the nuts and bolts of are we merging? Are we co-locating? What are we doing? Who's bringing what to the table? How is this all going to work? And those partnership projects typically result in an agreement, a memorandum of understanding, something like that. And it seems like maybe that's when it's finished. Like, oh, we signed we signed on the line, we're done. But really the bulk of our work is in the implementation phase. That's the third type of our grant making. And that covers a huge range of things from hiring an accountant to merge your bookkeeping systems to a database expert mm -hmm. to bring together your data management systems. And we're doing a lot of work in cultural integration, mm -hmm. um, helping organ you know, hiring consultants to come in and help to staffs, boards, volunteer bases, whomever is driving the work in an organization really come together and figure out how they work. I think there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of things that cultural integration could mean, and it means something different to everyone. Um, but I think when we really look at how we share information, how we share work, um, how we make decisions, those things feel like they're the same everywhere, but they are not the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you don't really notice the, the sticky points until you start bringing organizations together and then um, you know, one staff is upset because they thought they were supposed to get information and another staff is upset because they, and, you know, you can really, you can head off a lot of, a lot of organizational challenges by focusing on that cultural integration piece. So we do a lot of that work too. Absolutely. And this work can range from anywhere from six months to a year in terms of working with you. Absolutely. I mean, and in terms of the the chatting, the confidential conversations, the resource sharing, that can go on forever. There are organizations that, you know, call me every couple of months and we, you know, talk about where they are and I hope they keep calling for years to come. Um, and sometimes it's, uh, you know, a one-time grant. They're doing one partnership. They just need to bring in someone to help merge their databases right. and that's all they need. And we'll engage in a, a six month or year long process. So it's, it is really a pretty flexible program. I feel very lucky to have inherited this this system the way it is because it does it lets us be who we need to be for the organizations we're working with. Which I say that you know there are as many different types of partnership projects as there are partnerships. They're all a little bit different, mm -hmm. and everyone has some different needs. So we're here for whatever it is. Thank you, and I, I want to lift up what you said earlier about uh, sometimes folks are um, concerned about talking to you. Um, or anyone in a role like yours, because they're concerned if their foundation, if uh, you know, if some of their mm -hmm. um, funders found out. And so I think it's really helpful for folks to know that it is because of the you know foresight and understanding that funders have that mm -hmm. MSI exists, right? Exactly. And right. so that exactly. this is really important for people to feel that they can have this relationship with their funders to say this is something we're thinking about because in most cases, as you know, folks are being proactive. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing, you want to you want to do this while there is something to offer another organization, right? Exactly. You don't want to wait until things are really bad. Yeah, when you right? have you a, done this 
Yeah. If you have a week long cash runway, I'm happy to talk to you, but we maybe should have talked a little while ago. Exactly. Uh, And it's, uh, but I think what you said is, is absolutely true in two ways, both that I think funders are more excited about collaboration than nonprofits necessarily know. And yes, so yes, it's absolutely valid to be scared for your funders to find out that you're exploring this. I completely understand. Before this role, I was an executive director in a nonprofit for almost a decade. I understand the fear, but um, but it is also true that a lot of funders are very excited about collaboration in all of its forms. Um, and so helping to dismantle some of that fear is why I'm here. But also I think uh, you know the, the MSI has been around since 2016 and there are other initiatives like it around the country. And it, we see funders coming together recognizing some of the the fear and the power dynamics at play and recognizing the value in having uh, a confidential person in the space in between funders and nonprofits. And so that foresight is incredibly helpful and sort of lets me be who I can be to nonprofits that a funder can't be. So that's really valuable. Wonderful. And and Jennifer, I I saw you shaking your head. This is clearly... It it is. No, no. I I love the work that Kate does because even in my research, I talk about the importance of a collaboration maker to kind of walk organizations through this process. And so, you know, I often see myself when I'm working with organizations as a collaboration maker, but that is exactly what MSI is. They're collaboration makers. And again, that is also the missing underline. That's the throughput on on all of it. And, And Kate, like all of the things that you're saying on the practical side is backed up with research because, you know, and, and practical knowledge, because it is so true that foundations love to support collaborations because they feel like they're having a greater impact. They feel like they've been able to help with the coordination. They better understand, they can see the organizations playing to their strengths. And, um, and so there's a, another myth, Mary, that you, that you spoke about that needed to, to be busted. You know, and also the data shows it's really important that you first create choices and then make choices. So having these conversations, for example, with a collaboration maker, with Kate's, with MSI, really allows you to create some choices that you may not have thought of, you know, so that you can make good decisions. So exactly. Yes. And so we want to remind everyone, too, in about 10 minutes, we're going to open it up for some Q&A. Want to go back and talk a little bit about understanding that um, the work is going to look different depending on the partners and depending on timelines, depending on the the sort of current situation with each organization. And Jennifer, one wondering what your data uh, has indicated, if if anything, when when are folks pressing the button, if you will? When are they saying, okay, we we're at a point where we need to have this conversation? Are they sometimes waiting until it's too late? <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, are they um, perhaps moving forward and not having all the information they need to, as you as you just pointed out, it's important to uh, put out what the choices are so you can actually have a choice. Where are you finding people are lining up in terms of when they can make a decision to even explore this, which, as you know, is a confidential conversation at the board level and with yes. likely the the staff leader? Um, sadly, uh, I've seen these in, in two like heat map points. One, when an organization is in trouble, even though they should have known many, many, many months ago, you know, that, that they were in trouble. And so it's always difficult because it's, it's always difficult to, 
you know, think strategically when you're in sort of chaotic situations. And the second kind of cluster has been on new opportunities, new initiatives, the opportunity to have a greater impact or seize a pot of funding. Organizations think about how they can operate collectively, collaboratively to, to like really secure opportunities. Kate, that's where I've seen most of it. Yeah, and I, I second that. The other big, I think, I don't have an actual data set to pull from, but the, the anecdotal data set that I'm seeing, the other heat is around leadership transitions. We mm, are seeing a lot, a lot of leadership transitions in the nonprofit sector right now, yes. and organizations yes. that had been hesitating to consider this work in the past um, are exploring it in a new way, I think. Absolutely. That and, can be and, back with data. Yes. <laughs> And and when any staff person leaves, and I'm talking to nonprofit leaders, um, you know, often understanding that it may be something you weren't expecting, but just as it is with regard to the staff leader, it creates an opportunity, right, to do something different, to think about it at least, right? You have an you have some space, you have a window to think about how you have um, provided services, how you've uh, you know handled your policy or advocacy work. And now with some staff changes, you have some other opportunities. And so that is often a time when uh, certainly the ones that I've been involved with, I've seen some movement. And, and I'll just say that I, I can talk about one in particular between Countryside um, and Little City. Uh, with, both of these were um, intellectual developmental disability organizations. It was a $30 million merger and Countryside was a smaller organization uh, that was uh, merging with Little City. And um, it, you know, it took about two years, as you can imagine, to get everything done because you start with the prospectus and, and really you know, having an organization write about itself and put itself forward in a particular manner. And, and then we you know, went through the letter of inquiry. We did the memorandum. Um, we had lots of opportunities for the boards to speak together. And then lots of those um, sessions where you've got your senior team talking to the other senior team and, and talking about what coming together would actually look like. And so I think, again, um, we can't overstate the cultural integration piece. Um, and something has to be um, really noted, I, I think, early and often around that um, as you're building the relationship, because as you know, all of this really is going to, it's gonna be um, successful or not based on relationships and based on, you know, uh, sort of coming together. So I've, I've been fortunate that I've been in all of the different places. I've been the board member who's had to talk to another organization about an organization that I founded merging. I've helped merge uh, several organizations together. And um, it's, you know, it's um, emotional in some cases, right? It's anxiety producing. And so taking all that into consideration, I think is really important. And I wonder from your work, Jennifer, I would love for you to just talk a little bit about your book uh, in terms of what we would find in your book and how it might be helpful to someone uh, who's running an organization who's thinking this might be something we need to consider. And there it is, just on cue. I'm always excited about anybody who is potentially excited about the, the book because it's, um, you know, I I've, I've started as a practitioner and then decided to go get a, a PhD. So it's always important to me to have information that is accessible for practitioners. But this is written in academic ease. But the 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 work the book talks about my doctoral research that is grounded in in my work as a practitioner because 
you know, when I decided to go back to get a PhD, I wanted to, you know, put some value in the world. And, and some of the things that I had seen in my work is that collaborations were pretty impactful when they could work. And so if I could add some information about how to create high impact collaborations, then I wanted to do that. And some of the most difficult work that I had seen done was affordable housing. I just think that that's mm -hmm. the level of complexity is significant. And so based upon um, leaders of successful and less successful affordable housing, uh, housing collaborations, you know, I built the, the, the base for the book. And then I tested some of those concepts through, you know, you know, some more high level, you know, theoretical, analytical, quantitative, but the, the ideas vet out. And in the book, I also talk about some how-tos on collaboration, as well as some examples. And uh, it's always funny because my favorite memory about writing the book is, um, you know, I'm in the doctoral program. I built this like collaboration tool. I'm like the collaboration blueprint. I'm super excited. And I'm calling organizations and I'm like, I figured out a way that we can make collaborations work, you know? And nobody was interested in my tool, you know? And so then I realized that, you know, you have to love people the way that they need to be loved. And, and high impact collaborations, their ability to secure dollars, to impact, trans to, to bring to fruition transformational projects is, is high. So then I picked up the phone again and I was like, I can help you get a million dollars. And people were like, can you come in today? Of course, so, right now, come over right now. Yes. <laughs> And so through the lens of, of like securing these transformational dollars, but really it's all about, you know, teaching about how collaborations can be impactful and how they work is really what the book does. But it's through the frame of, of how we were successful in, in securing those resources to have impact in, in, in you know, in communities. And so uh, it's, it's awesome. My next book's going to be a grant writer book, you know, but okay. I still have to get to it. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll, we'll be looking for that one as well. Well, you know what we're going to yes. do now? We're going to we're going to transition into some questions, and they are coming in in the under the Q and A uh, section. And so, uh, let's start with this first one. Um, it's how do you talk to your funder about this? Now, we talked a little bit about this, but we maybe we can give folks a few more details about this. It may be one organization going out of business or perceived scope creep. Um, and and I would just say that that's that is certainly always a concern. Uh, Kate, do you wanna start with that one? Sure, I think my two answers, uh, the first would be to whomever asked this question, feel free to put time in my calendar um, and helping folks figure out how to talk to folks about what they're doing is how I spend my days. So, and also I, I'm not sure if this was clear earlier, all the MSI services are free and open to all organizations regardless of whether they're forefront members. So I, uh, that's so, a really good that's a really yes. good thing to know because yeah, I bet so they can't feel free, even talk uh, to you. I'm sure I'm sure information will be shared out, but feel free to to schedule time to talk more. But I think in more on a more broad sense, it's talking about talking with funders always feels scary because you know it feels like the stakes are very high. I think coming into the conversation around opportunities, around we have identified an opportunity to advance the organization or advance the organization's mission and I wanna to talk to you about it is a much stronger and more exciting place to come to a conversation than 
we're panicking because something's wrong and we want to tell you in case you find out about it. And I think there can be the same conversation, but when you frame it for yourself absolutely. as absolutely. here's something absolutely. exciting and it is exciting. I mean, recognizing the natural life cycle organiza- of the organizations go through and how you are as a leader are shepherding your organization responsibly and thoughtfully through that life cycle change. That's really exciting and powerful. And your funder will be excited to have that conversation with you. Um, if you come in saying, holy cow, I don't know what's going on, panic, 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 that's a little bit less exciting. Real, both are real. But I think looking at it as um, from that position of strength and opportunity will help you feel confident going into the conversation and also help your funder hear what you are trying to communicate in a way that uh, is fruitful for both of you. Absolutely. And I would just say as a former funder, that is the conversation you want to have, not, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, we're going to close in two weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that means you didn't probably tell me something months and months ago, maybe even a year ago, right, that you should have been talking about with me. I'd like to think that overall in philanthropy, right, and this could be another whole webinar, um, is that (laughs) funders have under, you know, I have a different understanding of the landscape of what's happening in nonprofits than they did, let's say, before COVID and before the racial recognition, yes. right? And so fully agree. Let's let's also keep that in mind. And again, this is about trust. So part of this has to do with the relationship you have with your funders, right? To begin with, that you can have these kind of conversations and that they are extending themselves to you and saying, we want to know how we can be helpful. We because it is it is in everyone's uh, best interest. Uh, for the organization to be successful. Funders want to have successful portfolios, right? You want to meet as an organization, you want to meet your mission and vision, both of them to your point, Kate. And so it's a win-win. And we and yes. the work that you're doing is important enough to be funded. So your funders don't want it to go away. And so I think that we help that. Yeah. yeah. And to, to just to call out more what you said, Mary, that having the conversation early, don't it's it's really tempting to wait until you have all the questions answered and you feel like you have everything packaged to tell your funder i think being brave enough to have that conversation early when it's still when you're still pondering it or even before you're really pondering it the earlier you're having these conversations the more funders feel trusted and then the more they're able exactly. to trust in return and um we're partners in this work okay. funders and nonprofits and everyone in between i think being able to have the conversation um, as early and, and regularly as possible helps a lot. Wonderful. And so and this is for you. Ma- oh, Jennifer, go ahead. Did you want to answer? I have a question I just, for you. I ahead. do. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to say that uh, I'm always want to remind uh, organizations of their power because mm. whenever we talk about funder, there's an inherent power imbalance. Absolutely. But I always tell you know organizations that the easiest thing that you can do is write the check. The organization is on the front line doing the work, having the impact. That's that's power. And so maybe the frame up is, you know, there's an opportunity that's uh, emerging. You know, are you interested in supporting this level of work or would you just like to continue to support, you know, the work that you have been? I create it, reframe it also as an opportunity for them to invest in an organization that's been winning on the front lines. And then you can kind of reclaim some of that power back. So it just feels like an opportunity for them just as well as it's an opportunity for you. Wonderful. Now, you know, this is maybe a point of clarity, uh, Jennifer, as well. This question is at the start. Jennifer, you mentioned the importance of selfish acting. And I actually said selfless when I was talking to you. So um, (laughs) what happens when an organization is totally stuck there and ignoring what matters 
for all rather than just their own organization. Mm -hmm. This is the power of the collaboration maker. This mm -hmm. is the power of someone to say, I hear you. Now let's also make sure we get the other voices in the space or on the wall or, or in the plan or the strategy. You know, acknowledge that they've been heard and it's important that, uh, that the other partners are heard so that we can ensure a, a viable pathway forward. Okay, wonderful. So here's a question that is for either of you, I believe. Um, I'd love your thoughts on ways to learn about other partners and how to refer clients to one another. I have used systems like NowPow, findhelp.org and others, uh, many map out community resources. Any response to that one? It's a question that comes up a lot. I haven't entirely cracked this nut yet, so I'm not sure I have a really fulfilling answer for you. Uh, most organizations that come to the MSI have already identified one or more partners before they find me. Not always, but often. Um, I have occasionally had the opportunity to broker a sort of consentful introduction between organizations, but it's not particularly common yet. I will say, I think going back to the question about how we talk to funders, Funders can actually can not all will, but could uh, have a really useful mm -hmm. role in yep. the community because right. they, of their specific That's vantage right. point. Um, right. As I spent, I spent ten years as a nonprofit leader, and I'm now in a sort of dual role of supporter and funder. And I will say, after ten years in the weeds, I now feel like I have climbed a tree and get to watch the way the grass is blowing, and it is a profoundly different vantage point. And mm -hmm. I think because funders and others in the community, whether they be you know government folks or sort of whoever is serving the organizations in your community, they know who's doing what and may know the more we have these conversations, the more they will know who's interested in partnering and in what ways. And so uh, sometimes they can be really useful connectors. Great. Mary, I would, I might add that um, really to pick up on what you talked about around the speed of trust, that tapping into your network, starting to cultivate relationships with organizations who you may want to make some of those referrals to. And then it just feels like you're, you're, you're creating this, this network that's very robust. So this sort of speed of trust, getting to know what services are available, making those connections with you know, your peers at those other organizations, it's really an um, amazing work. And, and at the core of, uh, of what, what the nonprofit sector can do so eloquently. The other thing that you just reminded me of that is sort of the the people who know the most about the organizations are the individuals that they serve. And whether it's students yes. or clients or whomever you're serving, they know where else they're getting services. They know what else they need. They know who which organizations are serving the community well or not. And so talking to the folks that you work with can be, I think, really helpful in understanding your landscape as well. And that's Kate, okay, did you say a survey? Is that how you say a survey? <laughs> it's, a, a data, it's data collection. Never. One data collection happening. Okay. I think, well, it's interesting that many of the questions are about how do we find each other? How do we find that organization? And um, this last question, uh, do you have any strategies for how to engage potential partners that may not have shown interest in collaborating in the past. I think everything we've mm -hmm. just talked about is, is really helpful in that. And you know, while you like to use the analogy of food, I'm gonna use the analogy that we use, which was 
it was like dating, right? We went out on a few dates with a number of people. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, in some cases, we already had been introduced, but in some cases, we had to go and have a, you know, have a couple of different dates just to have the conversation. That's how it starts. Are you interested? How, how might we connect? Right. And then from there, we, um, when we did, we got to the letter of intent, um, then we were getting engaged. So we got engaged, you know, uh, we're going to check out each other's family, (laughs) however you define family. Uh, And then, um, you know, lo and behold, we, you know, some people might refer to it as a prenuptial agreement, but uh, we do the deal (laughs) and then we're married. Right. And so um, that is how we thought about it. And, and it really is this process again, around the relationship building. We just can't say that. So, if you have if you have any organizations you're thinking about, just try to get to know them in a very non-stressful uh, manner. Just check them out. That's what happens, right? I mean, that's 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 what I would suggest, and that's how we we started to think about it. Um, any, any comments about that, Mary? Mary, Mary, that's great. But the food works. The Mm-hmm. The, the, the marriage works. It can be a polyamorous situation. You know, whatever. You know, no judgment. No judgment here. Whatever so you have many partners. That's exactly right. Just like we said, the marriage isn't the end. That's the beginning. Exactly. And it is, it is all right. an ongoing process then exactly of right. living and working together for the That's rest exactly of the organization's right. time. That's it's right. That. And it's, it's also true that throughout that dating and engagement process. And this is something we talk about at the MSI a lot, that the goal is not to get married no matter what. The goal is to make sure that organizations have everything they need to make an informed decision about what's right for them. And that's it, that can get lost sometimes when you're you know picking out flowers and caterers and stuff for the <laughs> wedding. It's really making sure that you're thinking about what what information do you need to make the best decision at this point? Um, and so that's really where we try to focus. And I think that goes in some ways to the question uh, this person's asking about organizations that aren't as interested in collaborating, that no one wants an unconsensual marriage. That's not that's not where it we want to work. be. And that, that organizations are just people. And so it really is about getting to know the people involved. And maybe yes. there's great alignment and it's not right right now. Maybe there isn't great alignment, but there could be at some point in the future. Um, but it's yes. just about building those human relationships between organizations. You will learn something about your organization, no matter how this process turns out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There are going to be some lessons learned that will help you no matter what. Jennifer, anything you'd like to add as we wrap? Because we're, we're, no, we're just the, the, yes, just the power of the getting to know. It is just, it's so powerful you get to know each other, you get to know the services, you get to know the clients and, and start there. Absolutely. So it's important, I think, as we close, just to keep in mind that this is an ongoing process, right? It's going to require effort, openness, um, a shared commitment, right? To, to achieving common goals. But this is the way that nonprofit organizations can really have meaningful collaborations and uh, in the end, have greater social impact, which is what we all want to do right and that's and, and and for all the organizations that we work with so thank you so much jennifer and thank you Kate. Yes. This, I, I said it was going to go very fast and <laughs> let me just say you can hear more about this on october 20th at the axelson center's conference and i'm going to throw it back to pierre thank you all so much this has just been amazing it has been i just loved 
the analogy about dating and into marriage and, and the food and everything. So I just want to thank our panel and moderator and to everyone who has joined us today. And keep in mind uh, that this session will be available later in September in an episode of Gathering Ground that Mary Morton does as her podcast. Uh, we'll be sharing those details later. And we do hope to see you in person at our conference, Synthesizing Strengths, a nonprofit sector that works together that'll be coming on Friday, October 20th. That will be more conversations about collaboration. For example, our morning plenary session will have the co-executive directors of the Building Movement Project, who will share cutting edge research on the sector and how it frames attempts to collaborate. Our afternoon plenary session will have nonprofit leaders from the North Lawndale Community Coordinating Council, who will share story and takeaways of their decades long collaboration. Breakout sessions will touch on topics, including how leaders can support a collaborative team, developing collaboration between your development staff and the rest of your organization, how empathy is a collaborative tool and more. And back by popular demand, we'll have our Ask a Funder sessions, mm -hmm. which will be an opportunity for you to have one-on-one -on -one informational conversations with a range of Chicago area foundation representatives and funders. And that might be a time to ask them what they think about collaboration. So check out our website for more information and register soon to take advantage of the early bird rate. So I look forward to seeing you then. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jennifer and Kate. And make sure to register right now for Access and Center's upcoming conference, Synthesizing Strengths, a nonprofit sector that works together. I'll see you there. And until next time, this has been Gathering Ground, and I'm Mary Morton.